0: Welcome to the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about the week's technology news. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh13. We've got exactly two hosts this week. I'm Leo Notenboom, the question answerer at
1: askleo.com. Gary? I'm Gary Rosenzweig, the host and producer of MacMos.com, where I post new Mac, iPhone, and iPad tutorials, and I also make mobile games at clevermedia.com. And uh, it's just the two of us this week because Randy has step out.
0: Yeah, it's kind of funny. Um, literally, he was on our, uh, on our call here a few minutes ago. And as I'm sure most of you know, he's one of the first responders in his county. And sure enough, his pager went off just before we started recording and he had to run off to a call. Now, he didn't tell us he had to run off to a call. He basically just said, you know, hey, I got to go, I'll get back to you. And we didn't know what we were going to do. But uh, Randy and I use a feature in Google Maps, which kind of ties it all back into technology, where uh, we can see where each of us is. There's a little icon on the Google Map that shows me where Randy is when I have a look at it. So essentially, (laughs) Gary and I sort of hung around here for a few minutes until his icon moved. And as soon as his, uh, his little indicator started moving away from his home, uh, we knew that uh, he was out on a call and wasn't going to be back anytime soon. So we made the executive decision to proceed on without him, and uh, here we go. But it's just an interesting use of a feature called location sharing in Google Maps. I actually use it with my wife. Uh, she can see where I'm at when I'm out on the road, a um, couple of other friends that we, uh, we do this with. It's just a convenient way to uh, to know where everybody is. So, yeah. with
1: that, well, I, I wanted to add to that too because we use that as well. Of course, the, on the Apple ecosystem, uh, my family uses f- Find My Friends, and uh, and you know it's really handy because it, it. One of the things it does is cuts down on the you know, either texting and driving or, or having to pull over and where you yeah, where you at, where <laughs> yeah, where you at, well, I mean, cause you know, it's, it, it's in a family. Sometimes all you really need to know is, you know, will the remainder of the family be home or be where I'm at in the next few minutes or will will be 15 minutes from now or, or whatever. Uh, and then of course having a, a teenager, it's also useful to, to know, and I give a parenting tip here, <laughs> a, a digital age parenting tip, is of course you want to have you know, the ability to know where your, your teenager is. Um, the tip is is don't even think about asking your high school-aged teenager uh, to enable that on their phone. What you do is you use that as uh, an incentive to, uh, for them to get their first phone. Uh, because when they're, say, 11, they'll agree to anything <laughs> to get that phone. And so the simple, well, you you agree that you will always have the, you know, location tracking turned on. Yeah, 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 sure, sure. No, you know, easy. And, and then you never mention it again. Right. <laughs> I like it.
0: I like it. Yeah. So. Unfortunately, at least in the Google ecosystem, I shouldn't say unfortunately, it makes a lot of sense. Google sends a periodic reminder. And in fact, I got mine uh, ah. yesterday that says, hey, just so you know, you've got location sharing turned on, you're sharing it with these couple of people and four more. In my case, I'm sharing it with a total of six. So you do get this periodic tickler that says, you know, yeah, you're sharing your location, just, you know, make sure that's what you wanted to do so i don 't know if that happens in the Apple ecosystem, but
1: no, no, uh, and I guess if it if it does start happening, then um, you just use the ransom of like well, who pays for the phone exactly Yeah. <laughs> yeah. so while're
0: yeah, while we 're of- on, on this topic real briefly, um, I want us to mention there's a different app that uh, coincidentally, I just used yesterday. I had a friend come over actually to our house for the first time uh, to go over some technology stuff and As she was on her way, she used her phone and sent me a text message that included a link to a service called Glimpse. It's G-L-Y-M-P-S, I think, or G-L-Y-M-P-S-E. We'll make sure there's a link in the show notes, of course. What it does is it basically says that anybody with that link can see your current location and it expires. And you could say how long you want that link to be valid. Be, it could be an hour it could be 4 hours i think it could be something like up to 8 hours at which point you need to renew it but it's very handy obviously it's convenient to know when somebody's coming from a long ways away just how close they are and when to expect them but to come full circle on emergency services, I actually do some um, emergency service work myself, animal related, where I do get these random call outs and I'm occasionally responsible for driving one of the supply vehicles out to where we're going. It's really nice for me to be able to use this service to say, hey gang, here's where I'm at so you know when the truck is going to get there without having to add just everybody to this more lengthy um, exposure of my location using Google, so there are a couple of really convenient ways to let people know where you're at either for you know a long time, as in Google um, or just you know strategically for specific uh, specific uses. It's very, very convenient so
1: anyway yeah uh, yeah so on to the stories yes um so we start off uh passports so the interesting thing about passports the newest passports. Uh, is they have these RFID chips in them, so there's just little chips that, when run over a, a scanner or near a you know a, a receiver, can read data. So instead of just having to rely on the printed words on the passport, there's actually all this uh, encrypted data on your passport that you know says who you are and your passport number and all sorts of stuff, um, and uh, a hundred countries have these now and hundred countries have them because the United States has pushed everybody into it. They said, you know, we want passports to be modernized, uh, so everybody get with the program and get these RFID chips in there. Then the funny thing is, is news this week <laughs> is that uh when these chips are then read, uh what's supposed to happen is the data is read right off of there and there's a certificate, and the certificate's supposed to be verified to make sure that the data is, in fact, correct and not forged. It turns out the U.S. Uh, Customs and, and Passport Service, you know, whoever you, you see at the airport when you come to the country, they haven't been checking the certificates. They never have, and, and they're not even close to being able to do it. So the data that's read off your passport, uh, while still difficult to forge, can
0: certainly be forged, um, so that implies that the data on the RFID chip A may not match the contents of the passport, mm-hmm. but it could also it could match the contents of the passport if the entire thing were forged.
1: Right, and the idea is uh, so. Right now, the the type of verification they do one of the things they do is to verify that the information on the chip and what they see on the printed page matches. Matter of fact, if you, you come in to the U.S., you, you put your passport, you have to put the information page down on a scanner, right. reads it in, and it's supposed to then check this visual look at your passport with the data it gets off of the chip. So, technically, the, um, that should be okay. It has to match the printed and the data part have to match. However, okay. there, there's, sometimes there's ways around it you can social engineer your way around it in certain places you can get somebody to visually look at it instead of a, a machine and you know for certain reasons and in that case of course the person looking at it could look at their computer and see there's your name and passport id and then they could look at the page and see that they don't match but it's a human so right. maybe not yeah and the other thing the, the the bigger threat is they could you could actually forge the data and the page you know forging the page was the whole reason this is there because you know forgers could make up fake passports and all it was was basically it was like making up a fake id right you know they just really had to work at it make a perfect looking passport um but then they couldn't forge the rfid chip the the data on it because it would have a certificate have to be verified well now that they know it doesn't have to be verified they right. could basically forge both halves, make them match, and then have a, a, a forged passport. Still harder to do than it was before RFID, but instead of not being possible, it certainly is possible.
0: Yeah, it doesn't sound, honestly, it doesn't really sound like it's that hard to a sufficiently sophisticated um, uh, uh, counterfeiter.
1: No, that's a scary thing, right? Yeah. Because so somebody who doesn't know what they're doing can't get through, can't do this. Somebody who does know what they're doing can't, and they would be the most dangerous people, right? right. You know, the right. people that would actually have, you know, maybe a, uh, a you know, a spy agency behind them or organization. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they could they could forge who they are, get into the country under a different name, and you know, whatever. So uh, it's 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 kind of scary. And the the ironic part is that the U.S. is the one that's been pushing everybody to you know, get the program with these RFID chips, and then here, the US isn't even implementing it correctly.
0: Now, is this, I'm not familiar with the technical details of the vulnerability, the fact what it is they're not checking. Um, Is it the same kind of check that like our web browsers normally do to make sure that an HTTPS certificate is correct? There's a uh, basically, a signature and a certificate that they then validate against a known set of root certificates um,
1: I believe so I believe it sound from what i've read mm-hmm. that 's what it sounds like. could be different at some more base level than that, but everything I read described it in that way
0: and they also seem to indicate that it's difficult to actually implement that level of validation
1: yeah well it's it's difficult, but it's one of the least difficult things to fix, in other words. It, you know, it's, they can't just fix it overnight. It'll take some money and all that. But compared to other problems <laughs> that you know, a border uh, and customs ha- have, uh, it it could be the the easiest thing for right. them to take care right. of. And I guess the more attention that this problem uh, gives, you know, the, it gets in the press, maybe the more they they might boost it. So, um,
0: in a sense, our passports have a zero day vulnerability.
1: It, yeah. Kind of, <laughs> That's uh, bizarre. you know, and, and uh, it's funny because you know I I remember when those RFID chips first started coming out, and then the the big thing people talked about is um, getting your passport scanned by somebody who had like a device in their pocket, and they would just walk through an airport, and if they come close enough to you, they can basically read what's on your passport, um, and they don't know what it is; they just have the data, and then they could clone it so they can make their passport basically relay a copy of your passport now right. the way you know the way that's you know doesn't cause a problem is then they don't know what that says so they don't know what their name is supposed to be they don't know what the you know the printed page is going to be completely different um so you know it's not that but you know people it was enough for people to buy tons of these little wallets that are lined uh, uh with protection so they i'll,
0: you, I'll admit I, I own one
1: yeah <laughs> I mean, it's it's kind of it's kind of unsettling knowing that somebody has your encrypted data, and even though it's encrypted, and it's probably not very useful to them, it's still yours. Right. And it, you know, it's not an feeling. And then you think, well, what else? You know, wh- what down the line could that be used for? So, so yeah, yeah I actually held on to my non RFID passport as long as I could. <laughs> That's funny. Four ups, four it's funny
0: because it, these RFID passports have been around for a while. Actually, yeah. they're not that new. So this is this has been
1: something that eight years, I think. Yeah. Yep. So, so yeah. So, um, so yeah. So uh, our next story, I guess, if we're done with that one, yeah. uh, is is about the music industry a little bit. So. Uh, story was in The Verge and other places um, and uh, it's about one of my favorite musicians of all time Neil Young um, who uh, who always he, he, he he's had his problems with the, uh, the online music industry um, you know it's just too easy to get music you know streaming and, and everything it, like devalues music and all of that and uh, let's see uh, he he really he called out uh companies like google for basically making it easier for people to pirate music and you know google does link you know if you search google the trillions of links google must have uh, you can find your way to pirated music uh, so so he's he's pissed about this and uh but he also laments that it's it's such a different music world today that he doesn't think people could achieve music stardom or success in the same way that they could when he was starting out. In other words, the, the rock star is dead kind of hmm. thing. Uh, but I know you and I, Leo, both uh, don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Um,
0: well, I'm not sure that I even agree with it to begin with because yeah. Lord knows there are plenty of rock stars out there. Rock. I mean, there are plenty of stars, certainly yeah. pop stars. Um, but I agree. I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing either. Um, yeah, because- I mean, I, yeah,
1: I think the industry has to continue to evolve. And while I, I agree that it is, I think it might be harder for like a you know, you know people to become rock stars, you know, without the music labels and the and the just the you know used to be music labels, radio stations, and you buy. The vinyl records was the only way to get it. There was no digital piracy. There was no streaming services and all of that. Um, I think, on the other hand, there's more variety of music now than ever before, which means that smaller artists, you don't have to obtain the level of selling uh, gold and platinum records to be successful. You could actually be successful and make a living as an artist without – most people knowing even who you are.
0: Perhaps, um, but I think that a lot of people do end up knowing who you are. You end up with, instead of, you know, one megastar with Mm. billions of followers, you end up with a lot of really good musicians, each with their own audience, in each with their own paying audience in many cases, where they're actually generating revenue in some formerly non-standard ways. I know that I support at least a couple via things like Patreon and so forth, and it's actually a very interesting model. They can make quite a successful living now doing their art, assuming, of course, they, um, they're, hey, they're any good. Uh, if anything, the the burden of marketing has shifted. In the past, the, the large stars in, on their way up relied on the record companies and the machine, if you will to um, To promote them, to promote them, and to get their name out. Now there are other ways to do that, and a lot of it is basically self hosted. Anybody could do it. So, it's, like you say, it's enabled a lot of a lot of new artists and a lot of things we probably wouldn't have heard otherwise.
1: Right. I've I've used. Uh, there's a website called Pledge Music that is like Kickstarter, but for um, for albums, really. I mean, for or for any music project and uh i've supported artists that i that i know that have basically gone to pledge music and said you know my i want to produce this album and here's this you know studio costs are this much and then they actually uh you actually get rewards for what you give just like in a kickstarter so um you know for like 10 bucks or something you would basically get the music but for higher prices you would get uh, things like autographed photos right. and uh, right. posters. They would basically clean out their attic and their basement and everything, <laughs> and, and send you stuff. I actually, uh, uh yeah, I actually uh, pledged a bunch to get a, an autographed guitar once. Cool, uh, which was nice. I don't know how I would have either afforded or had the ability to obtain a, right. a, an autographed guitar from an artist I liked. Without a system like that, and, and clearly she had plenty of guitars, and this was a great way for her to raise some money um, you know for the, for the uh, studio costs. So yeah, I think it's great. And I've heard Jonathan Colton uh, talk. He's, you know, an artist uh, who has exactly that kind of following. He's got a very loyal uh, following. It's not like he's ever had a number one hit record or anything like that, but uh, he gets, you know enough people to come out, see him in concert. You know, whatever big city he wants to play comes out with a new record he's got social media following and he can get people to to buy that And he's got all sorts of other projects and things going on and uh and he this you know he's a successful artist without having to have a you know huge record company and you know sell out stadiums and, and do right. all right
0: and that. he's he's probably getting a bigger percentage of each you know of oh, each yeah. person's money and, and more which is what makes up art. for it yeah yeah, uh, and of course you end up with a much—I don't want to say much more passionate, but certainly a, much, a literally more invested audience that are that are uh, helping to support you. The scenario that I like was uh, one of the artists that I was uh, uh, promoting. Same thing on Patreon, right? You have certain amount per you know per record or per song, or you know various level different goals or pledge levels you could make, and of course they put on the extreme level for you know several thousand dollars. Um, they come out and do a concert for you. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. It's kind of an interesting way, something you would never ever see coming out of a uh, um, um out of a record company, but something that is so very, very doable uh at the at the at the macro level of uh, of these kinds of things. It's very cool.
1: Yeah, another band I know, um, the Dolly Rots, they actually had a, a fundraiser thing where they would re record the lyrics to one of their songs. Um and obviously they had their own, you know, studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, where they can, you know, as most artists can today, because, you know, just a couple of MacBooks and <laughs> the microphones and, you know, stuff like that. And you've got a, a little studio and they could, you could, uh, pay them some amount of money. I think it was like a hundred or 200 bucks and they would re-record the, just the lyric track, put it on and it would, you could put your name or the name of whoever you're gifting it to. Uh, in the song, very cool. yeah, Um, and yeah, I thought that was, uh, that was pretty cool. And they had a bunch of other really creative little things and they all, and they're always putting on, um, streaming concerts for the people that, uh, pledge money. So the people that are part of their little membership group and are, and and are, you know, paying the money, they will play a live concert that's streamed, uh, online. To you know, a few thousand people. Just to them, yep. just to them, just to watch it and everything. So lots yep. of cool stuff that, yeah, you, you, and you couldn't do that in, when Neil Young was starting off. You know, it's interesting. So it's I a mean, trade off.
0: We've known this for a while ever since music started to go digital and in the early days of MP3 pirating and Napster and all that stuff. That um, you know the landscape was changing, and mm-hmm. I think that that's true for so many things. It's true for much more than just music. But I think music is one of those bellwethers for us that has, because it was early on in the digital digital process, um, we're seeing a lot of different things happening with it. And unfortunately, the people that are resistant to change are the ones who are the most negatively impacted because they're just not willing to look at some of the you know, hundreds or thousands of alternatives that this new world opens up for them. And that's kind of sad. I'm not a huge Neil Young fan. I mean, I like some of his music, but I'm not heavily invested in him. But I'm sure he's not the only one in that boat. And that's that's to me, that's kind of sad, because I think that if he were to, or the folks of his ilk were to embrace some of this newer technology, some of these newer models... Uh, they can continue to do some really interesting things and help advance not just their art, but perhaps the very technology that they're currently railing against.
1: Exactly. And some of them do, to be fair. Um, but uh, I guess if you have enough enough rock stars from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, some of them are going to embrace it and some of them will try to you know, go against it and
0: yeah, well, good luck with that.
1: Yeah, I know. It's 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 kind of, uh, yeah, you can't really. It does remind me a little bit of, uh, you know, Ray Bradbury and some of the things he had said about the Internet. Uh, you know, he, he wasn't a fan of uh, the Internet.
0: Which is unfortunate.
1: Which is unfortunate. I just, you know, and I, I think sometimes, um, yeah, sometimes it just doesn't fit with your worldview. The irony is that yeah.
0: on the Internet this afternoon, I found out about uh, apparently they're remaking Fahrenheit 451. Ah. and I found out about it and I know where to go find it and I'll probably end up rereading it. So, you know, the Internet is helping his his original work to continue to be consumed and reconsumed as well.
1: Sure. And, and of course, you know, I always think about um, you know, with Fahrenheit 451, you know, the whole concept has been made... Uh, well, I mean, the whole digital age has basically made it impossible to burn all the books, right? Know, because it's so easy to you right. have all the books. <laughs>
0: Not that we don't have other problems in its place, but yeah. that particular one is absolutely, you know, yeah. almost
1: impossible. The, 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 the knowledge is more spread, uh, wider available, and cheaper than ever before. I also think of uh, you know Benjamin Franklin's uh, you know starting the free library. Yes, You know, the idea was because in his time, only rich people had access to books and it's hard for us to believe anybody that, you know, is alive today that that, that was ever a problem that, you know, especially now you go to any Saturday morning, go, go to garage sales near your house uh, and there'll just be books <laughs> just all over the place, you know, just please take, you know, these books. Um, but, uh, you know, there was a time when it was just, impo- unless you were rich, it was just impossible. If you wanted to read a book, forget it, you know, go away, kid you can't so the free library started off with that concept that anybody could come in and access books and now with the internet it's it's you know the, and the fact that we have mobile phones that can access the internet and absolutely all the stuff's available it's 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 great
0: yep yes it is so if i understand uh, correctly one of his gripes uh, that you started with mm-hmm. was that google enabled linking to pirated copies um, of music, Mm -hmm. which, you know, fair enough, I get that. There's another story from just the past couple of days, um, a lawsuit that uh, Playboy raised against um, Boing Boing. Boing Boing is a, a large technology and current news site. And the issue revolved around Boing Boing's article linking to a collection of Playboy uh, Playmates of the Year, uh, images of those. And on the surface, what, what they claimed, or at least what the headlines were stating, was that um, Boing Boing was violating uh, Playboy's copyright by linking to these pictures. Well, as a headline... A, it's wrong, but it also doesn't really make sense because it is not illegal. It is not a violation of anybody's copyright to say, "Hey, the picture's over there, right? It's on somebody else's website. It's a link to somewhere else that ultimately you really have no control over." I can I can link to um, a picture or an article on MacMost, for example. And the fact that I link to it is not a violation of your copyright. If I were to copy your article, paste it on my website and publish it as my own, or even with attribution, just publish it without your permission, that's a copyright violation. But in digging into this article a little deeper, and yes, I did my research with Playboy, and no, I was off about reading the articles, trust me. Um, What the real scenario was, was that Boing Boing was linking to a collection of images that had been stolen or pirated or uh, basically uh, uh, stolen by someone else. So there was this third party involved. So it would be like if someone took one of Gary's articles off of MacMost.com and republished it on their own site without Gary's permission, and I linked to that illegal site. That's not a copyright violation on my part. It's still perfectly legal for me to do, um, but it's that third-party site that actually broke the law. They made Ill, you know in, uh, copies of content without the original author's permission. Um, Now, I do have to interject here, of course, as soon as I say it's not against the law. A, Gary and I, we're not lawyers. We don't, you know, none of this is legal advice, yada, yada. But my understanding of copyright law is it's perfectly fine to point to something, to say it's over there. That's not uh, something that is actionable—it's not something that is illegal. And that, one of the reasons that I, I wanted to bring this article up was was not necessarily for the um, you know yet another example of a misleading headline. Uh, if you, as soon as you delve deeper, you realize that it's a much more complex issue than the headline would have you believe. But I'm actually surprised—it's a question that I get often enough that uh, I know I, you know I have the answer always ready to go. I get asked if people are allowed to link to one of my articles. And there's no reason to ask the question. An article, something that's published on the internet publicly, is available publicly. You can look at it. You can't copy it, but you can go to wherever it has been published pu- publicly published and look at it, be it Reading an article, looking at a picture, or watching a video, if it's posted publicly you're allowed to point to it, and that's all a link is you're allowed to say it's over there, and that surprises me that so many people are concerned that uh, linking to something might be illegal when it's not. I know that randy it's unfortunate he's not here, but I know that Randy for his honorary unsubscribe dot com um, uh, yeah, feature. Each week in his newsletter, he mentions the current honorary unsubscribe, but he takes care to explicitly say, okay to link. On one hand, I understand why he does that because there's so much misunderstanding about the concept. But on the other hand, it still kind of grates at me because it's a given. If something's on the internet publicly, it's certainly okay to link to it.
1: Yeah, and of course I, I agree with everything you just said. Um, so that being the case, I'm going to introduce some controversy anyway. Excellent. <laughs> okay, so um, so Leo, suppose you know, uh, to ask Leo, you primarily deal with Windows operating system. Uh, suppose that you notice that somebody had a uh, a way to download uh, Windows, and, and and you can install it on your computer for free. And uh would you link to that? Would you say, "Hey, I found it an interesting resource. This site has windows available for free
0: right? well, that actually is a reflection on my ethics ah yes but ethics. It's still, that's still
1: it's yeah. still it's still legal whether it's still it's
0: legal ethical is another
1: question right exactly so there are so there are two things here you know we can we can both defend boing Boeing's legal right to link to these um but there's the ethical question, and it is a question because, you know, ethics, the ethics here isn't clear. Um, right. A lot of it depends on Boeing
0: Boing's original intent, right? Right. If their intent was, hey, here's a picture of a bunch of nude women, go look at it, that's one thing. If they are a news organization discussing things like copyright infringement and say, here's an example of copyright infringement, well that's actually a reasonably ethical approach to linking to it. I'm not sure that in their shoes I would do the same thing, but um it at least passes a sniff test for me.
1: Yeah, it's uh you know also how much they knew. I mean if they were linking to it as uh saying, "Hey, look, this is totally uh somebody illegally put this stuff up there. Here's all these images and we're going to link to them." Um I think that's a much a very shaky ethical grounds. If you know they think may, maybe there's a website and it's dressed it all up as this is somewhat official or we've licensed the rights to these pictures or something, and they simply don't know or they are not sure that these are legal or not. Now in this case, you know it's a, it's a well known publication, so it's hard to not be not sure. But say if it was a, an obscure publication, right? And you know here's some fiction you know, stories. uh, And we have the complete rights to these books. There's eBooks and we have the complete rights to them and you link to them and you don't really, you don't really think that they're illegal as opposed to knowing, oh yeah, this site is a pirate site. These are definitely illegal and I'm going to link to them.
0: It also gets a little bit more complicated because there's also, is there a responsibility to pay attention to that. Yeah. For example, in this in this specific case, the images were hosted out on the photo sharing site Imager. Given that they are Playboy centerfolds, it should be reasonably obvious that there's a good chance that they weren't supposed to be there. Um, should does Boing Boing have a responsibility ethically, not legally, but ethically yeah. to realize that, to notice that. Um, And that's, I agree, those are tough questions.
1: Right. Now, there's a big irony here, too, that we should probably address. (laughs) And that's uh, playboy and the First Amendment and freedom of speech. Um, Traditionally, playboy is a big defender of both the First Amendment and freedom of speech, uh, throwing lots of money and effort behind it, because, of course, early on, especially, they were affected uh, by by this um and in fact when i was in journalism school in the in the early 90s uh they probably there was a journal that was published by playboy that was uh, you know i guess they financed journalists to do research on first amendment news stories and so when i was doing my research on first amendment stuff i was actually uh finding that a lot of my sources would go back to playboy funded journalism and it was not about pornography it was about sure and, you know, I, all sorts of things, you name it, Im- information, you know, uh, government uh, secrets. I mean, ev- everything uh, that you can imagine that was First Amendment. So they they took it as an issue to spend money on. So then to get all the way here to 2018 and find that uh, something that should really obviously be be a freedom of speech issue, you know, can Boing Boing say, you know, here's a link to something, um, you know, they're, they're on the other side of it all of a sudden. I don 't know if Playboy still does any First Amendment uh, research or, or work or anything, but uh, but I find it, I do find it interesting to find them on this side right. of the story. Now to be clear,
0: one of the things that Playboy would have been, and I'm assuming they did would have been well within their rights of doing is submitting um, a takedown notice. To the hosting company, Imager, where Which those I, pictures were,
1: I think they placed. did, didn't they, or it, it, it
0: seemed to imply that they did. I'm actually not sure because, of course, the news reports that I'm seeing are all focused on this goofy, um, you know, copyright. Uh, you know, is a link a copyright violation or not? So they're focused on that as opposed to the underlying true copyright issue.
1: It may be that I, I'm pretty sure Imager, It's pretty easy to, um, you know, if you see a, a copyright infringement, to just fill out a quick form and and they'll take it down uh because for those of you that don't know imager is a is a site it's a very useful site that allows you to basically post an image you don't have to have an account or anything you can just go to the site upload an image and it gives you a unique url and then you can um then send somebody a link to that it's handy if you want to send somebody a picture um or any graphic without having to create an account or a shared anything i actually teach people how to use it when they need to send me a screenshot of a problem they might be running into on their mac and they say well, how i have a screenshot it explains this how do i get it to you i point and write Imager and i say just here real quick and you upload it it gives you a url and then i could see your screenshot and i don't have to give you access to anything on my server and you don't have to you know create a dropbox account or anything like that so I think it's pretty easy for you to go and then see something on Imager and say, this is a copyright violation. You know, maybe even check off a box or something like that. And then it's taken down. Playboy probably did that and didn't even need to go to the point where they actually had to send out a letter. Um, I've, I've done that not for Imager but for things like uh, posted to other places where they've had a form and I just fill out the form and they don't want any trouble. You know, they're They'll take it down, whatever. It's interesting.
0: I I occasionally run into the same problem, and I've yet to encounter a form. My assumption, especially for a site as large and as popular as Imager, is that the takedown process can be so easily abused, you want to put in a certain barrier to make the people who are requesting a takedown um, prove that they're serious, right? Have to make them do at least a little bit of work to actually go through the motion. Now, obviously, you know, submitting a takedown request in detail is something that Playboy's lawyers can probably do in a half an hour. That's not the issue. But in terms of, you know, malicious takedown notices, which is a thing, right? People do sometimes um, issue fake takedown notices to cause the legitimate holder of some material grief. they, that's a problem. That's the other side of the problem that I think a site like Imager is probably having to deal with on an ongoing basis as well.
1: I, I think there, well, I just looked and actually you can under any image, there's the dot, dot, dot menu. And one of the things there is report an image. Um, and so you can pretty easily report cool. an image. Okay. I think it's imager is free and it's most of the people that use it, use it for very temporary things. Right. Um, it's not like YouTube where it's like, I've got my account and I, I'm putting important videos there and you know, putting my name on them and all that. Imgur, you can, you can upload something anonymously, share it, and a day or two, you, you forget about it. You, it's not like you go back and look in your account and you've got all these things. So they probably don't get as much kickback if, if somebody reports something and it gets taken down. Probably the right. person who originally posted it doesn't even know or care because – They were done with it. Their use
0: is done. It's interesting that you mentioned YouTube because YouTube is also running around in the back of my mind. They have a serious problem with with takedown notices, you know, both not taking down things they should be taking down and then taking down things that are actually quite legitimate because somebody decided to complain about it.
1: Right. I've been on both sides of that. I've had uh, people not legitimately claiming my stuff uh, infringed on their copyrights. And I've had stuff that people have copied my videos, uploaded it to their own YouTube accounts, and I filled out that form at YouTube without having to do anything, printed or you know mailing anything. I just filled out the form, mm-hmm. and, I've had, and I've had YouTube uh, remove it. Of course, it's very easy. That's the b- best case scenario for YouTube when I can actually show them that here's the original and mine's older than theirs, you know, than the copy. Right, and. YouTube can verify that because it's on YouTube. They can see right. that, you know, oh, yeah, that date's real because it's our internal date. So, But the times when um, somebody's falsely claimed copyright against me has uh, – it's always been uh, – one time I actually uh, had a video that happened to be named the name of a pop song. It had nothing to do with the pop song. It just was the same title. And it got hit with a copyright violation. There's no, there wasn't even any music in it. <laughs> um, and that was, uh, yes, yeah, so, you know, I had to go. And, and you want, it, you know, I could have cared less because it was an old video. But you, there's a strike system in YouTube. So oh yeah. You yeah. want to go and you want to fight it and say no, don't give me one strike on that. That's that is, and, and also I feel that I wanted the company that was reporting it to be called out for just you doing a dragnet basically right. is probably what they were doing and hoping that nobody would, would care. Um, you know, when I want YouTube to be able to go and say, okay, th- this is a bad actor and we have to watch everything they do because they were doing a.
0: So before we move net. on to the next topic, yeah. I do want to let everybody know that I took a bullet for the team and took the risk and clicked on the link that goes out to imager. <laughs> And sure enough, the pictures are gone. What's fascinating is that the link is still technically active. There's just nothing there except a view counter. This page that no longer has pictures on it has 2.1 million views. Hmm. So apparently people were interested in those pictures for whatever reason.
1: <laughs> I'm sure it was all research. It was all journalists doing research on this, exactly. on this important uh, copyright law story. Exactly. That was it, so. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, we can move on from that. I think uh, we'll, you know, let's talk a little bit about this interesting story, um, similar to one we talked about not too long ago, about a uh, a, a scam. Uh, I can't remember what it was that we talked about now, about Amazon, and there was a, oh, the review scam, where people were, were getting products in the mail that they hadn't ordered. Yes. And it turns out they were doing it to, uh, so that uh, somebody could, do a review of the product as a verified, uh, buyer. Well, here's a, here's a totally different way, uh, that people are using Amazon. They're using it for money laundering. So here's how this works. Um, so somebody has to launder some money. So they have say stolen credit cards and stolen credit cards are kind of dangerous to use. If you go to a store and who knows, you might, they might catch you, right? You're there in person, you've got a stolen credit card, it might not be good for you. So you try to use them online. But you know, how many TVs can you can you order? (laughs) You know, if you've got if you want to get some serious money, you need to find a way to turn that into cash. So what people have been doing is they've been creating fake ebooks. So these are books that actually have lots of pages in them, but they're made of computer generated text, just Not quite random words, but like little phrases and just, it's just gibberish really, you know, but it looks, if you glance at the page, it looks normal and they try to read it and you can't, it's unreadable and they'll have hundreds of pages in them and they upload them through Amazon system, which of course no human checks and they put them up for sale and they put them up for sale for big prices, like $200 and $500 and things like that. And then they go ahead and buy their own books. Using the stolen credit card, so they create fake Amazon accounts, use a stolen credit card, buy this ebook don't even care about downloading it, of course, they just care about the fact it goes through Amazon system, and as the seller of the ebook, they get sixty percent of the revenue and so you can launder stolen credit card money through amazon this way that's very bizarre it's bizarre and it's uh, you know it's a uh, interesting way to do it it's funny that amazon is actually profiting from this because they keep a percentage of it sure. a large sure. percentage um so that's interesting from a possible future legal standpoint of some sort uh profiting from money laundering uh whether or not they're taking proper precautions and things like that uh the other thing is is, is the reason that this is becoming popular very quickly is amazon allows you as a a Bookseller, you know, some an author let's say that's published a book to Amazon to basically get this money from Amazon and then transfer it directly into a bank account, and you've got your cash. And apparently, this is faster than if you uh, were to use some of the other mo- money laundering systems, which go through things like uh, Bitcoin exchanges. And the problem with that is, is that you know, in the financial world, there are little safeguards against money laundering that make it harder and slower to, to do it. So they could still do it, but it takes a while. Whereas with this Amazon uh, scam, they could they could get their money pretty quickly.
0: I, so the, the only problem I have with this as a technique is that, now you and I, you also publish on Kindle. I do. We both publish. Yeah, on. I've done it. Yeah. And my take on it is that getting the money isn't anywhere close to being fast. <laughs> I mean, it takes weeks. Well, least. maybe
1: compared to, you know, doing it you know, through, uh, I, through one of these I, money exchanges, maybe it is faster.
0: Or, or or there's something about, you know, my account that I haven't checked into that maybe I could be getting my uh, my revenue a little bit more quickly. But the other part of it is it's, it leaves an audit trail, right? They know uh, at least however long the account that's receiving the money is active. Mm-hmm. Um, they know where the money went, what bank it went to. And sure, I'm sure that you know part of this, part of laundering the money is to abandon the uh, the receiving Amazon account at some point, and indeed abandon the bank account that eventually took the money. But there's like this window of vulnerability that maybe they're not doing maybe they're not looking into it right now. But it seems like it's something that should be relatively easy for Amazon to uh,
1: maybe put in a few safeguards. It should be. Hopefully they, they will now. Um, I, I think it sounds like what they were doing is they would, they would put many of these books up there and with many different you know, fake authors with accounts and gradually buy books. So maybe it wasn't so much that they wanted to just buy a whole bunch of the books and cash out. It's, they would buy maybe one book a week, but at the point where they, they had that money ready to, to go in their Amazon accounts, so they could, they could get it into their bank account. From that point on, it might, may have been faster, whereas with the exchanges, it may have been slower. It, interestingly enough, the way this was discovered, um, or at least reported, was an author actually uh, got a 1099 uh, you know, a tax form saying that uh, he had sold way more books than he thought he did. And we looked into it. Wh- uh, one of these uh, author accounts had actually been set up in his name and with his social security number. Wow. So they were basically, you know, using a real person's name and social security number to, to do this. Obviously, the bank account was not his, um, and he didn't know anything about it uh, until he got his 1099, reporting that he had earned all this tax income that he that he really didn't. So that was uh, that was kind of fascinating. And you know, the funny thing is, this kind of, uh, it's a memory uh, came to me. Um, I would read stories before about these bizarre books on amazon that have nothing but random words and things in them and uh and i don't think at the time which much must have been much more than a year ago i don't think at the time there was any explanation for them it was just bizarre like who would buy this 400 hundred dollar book that's just you know computer generated uh you know sentences um and apparently that's the, the, this links that together and comes, you know. Connection. It's interesting because it also makes me think of every so often you see
0: used copies of books mm-hmm. for sale at incredibly exorbitant prices. Yeah. Especially when the new book is available for standard, you know, its regular price. So, and so I, I wonder if that technique couldn't also be used where you offer up a used book for sale at an exorbitant price. You don't really have the book because you know you're the one that's going to be buying it
1: yeah though you would need a, a shipping address, but so yeah I, so having you know all the previous book selling experience right. my wife and I owned that bookstore for a while and, and sold online, um, I know a lot of those big prices on books uh, they' they're programs that are, they go out there and try to do things like uh, figure out good prices on books so they'll you know if you have an inventory of say ten thousand books. And, you know, you've scanned it, you have barcode scanners, and you're scanning them all in, and they go into a database. And then this database gets uploaded to Amazon, and you can update that database whenever you want. So what happens is price testing. There's a lot of times these books will go up there at for really high prices just to see. And the idea is that any one book may not sell at that high price. But 1,000 books at a high price you know, give it a week, and one of them may actually sell for some random reason, like it was you shipped faster, or the person wanted that specific edition, or just something strange. And then, and then it shifts it around, and by shifting around the prices, and maybe even having them change daily, they could optimize. You know, and of course, we hated all this. We hated seeing all this because a lot of times they do the opposite. They actually have books priced at one penny. Right with shipping uh, and handling costs that were six dollars, you know, whereas we'd have a book for two dollars and shipping and handling was two, another two dollars, so it was the lower price, but people would still click on the penny book right. and and buy that and pay more money um, in the end. So there's all sorts of shenanigans going on with pricing models for people selling through Amazon. It's, it uh, is it
0: is an interesting time. Certainly, there's. Um, you know, being the biggest retailer that they are, um, they're having to deal with a lot of issues like this, I'm sure. It'll be interesting to see what kind of safeguards they uh, they put into place. And then, of course, it'll be interesting to see uh, the next scam.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, the, you know, the thing is, the next scam is already out there. Probably. Right. Yeah, we just twenty of them, around. Right. And we, and the thing about the scams is, you know, they, they exist and work for a while before people like us call them out. Yep which is the really scary thing about uh, there was actually a new story this week about a company that educates um, uh, corp- people that work at corporations against phishing. Um, so the whole deal with this company is an educational program. And you, as a corporation, you can buy into it and teach your employees how to not get scammed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sold for a few hundred million dollars uh, oh. to another company. And I was like, Really, just for teaching people at corporations how to not be scammed.
0: It's a big deal. It really is. I mean i i hear from I hear from a lot of people, and one of those things it's it's the old curse of knowledge thing. I think that you and I and a lot of technical folks we kind of take it for granted that that these things are easy to spot and that they're easy to avoid. Um, but in reality, to the vast number of people that you know don't eat breathe and drink technology because they love it so much um it's not always obvious it's in a well-crafted uh fishing attempt can do some serious damage in these major corporations you hear about um i think they call it yeah it's penetration testing where you know the corporation will just hire somebody to try and break in and nine times out of ten they do it by social engineering and uh, fishing
1: Yep. Yep. It, it, well, it's always that threat of, uh, you know, when a thief wants to target you, uh, whether it's breaking into your house or breaking into your online accounts or into your corporation, you know, if you're being targeted, it is really, really hard to, to not succumb to that. Yep. Um, most of our defenses are based on the fact that people, people want some money. They don't necessarily want your money. <laughs> they just want some money. So they'll right. go, if if you've got certain protections, but go to the next person. But if somebody really wanted your money, you know, uh, it might not be profitable for them to spend all that time trying to do it, but it's really hard to prevent. So if you've ever done the exercise of saying, what if I locked myself out of my house? Uh-huh. What would I, what would I do? Yep. You know, and you think what would be the, you know, knowing everything I know, I know have all this information about every door, every window, every windowsill, everything. How would I get in? You know, Mm -hmm. it's a great exercise because then you figure out what that what is that thing, and then you do something to prevent it, and then you go to the next one.
0: (laughs) It's it's funny. Two things on that. One is um, the day we took possession of our current house, we locked ourselves out. That was always entertaining. (laughs) Uh, My wife ended up crawling in through a window. The um, the other thing is I've done this exact same exercise, but I do it a little bit differently. One of the things that I care about is the security of my accounts, my passwords, my whatevers, and I do this thing where if I am traveling and I lose all of my technology, my laptop, my, my thumb drives, my anyth- anything that might have a digital bit on it, and I lose my wallet where I may actually even have something written down that would help me get back into an account or get it back into an email account, what do I do? How do I get back in? And yep. how do I get back in in a way that keeps – whatever I'm using to get back in secure enough so that other people can't use it to get into my stuff as well. Um, It's a really, really difficult problem to solve as it turns out, but it's interesting because you end up solving a lot of really interesting problems
1: along the way
0: that ultimately end up making you more secure.
1: Exactly. These are all very good things for everybody to do to, to think about that. What if, what if I lost my phone? What if my phone was just, Mm -hmm. was out and it's gone. Now what? Let's pretend that happened and let's go through all the things, pretending I don't have my phone. Yeah, how could I? What would I have to do? What, what you know? Before I travel too, I look at what I'm bringing with me, mm-hmm. maybe an iPad, a laptop, or whatever, and I think, what happens if this goes missing? All of a sudden, what what's my plan? Um, and maybe test things. A lot of times, I will test something out. Oh wait, if I'm missing this laptop, and I need to get online somewhere, let's try to get online without my laptop, but right. and without any of my normal computers and, right. and I do it. And sometimes I say, Oh yeah, I probably set something up so that I could do that. Even losing my passport. What, what would happen if I lost my passport while traveling abroad? Yep. Oh, maybe I should, you know, they say having a, a copy of your passport available really helps at the embassy. Yep. You yep. know, so there's all these, all these exercises. Anyway, we could talk about the, this forever. Yeah. We, I
0: did that kind of stuff myself when I traveled to uh, a while back.
1: Anyway, very good. Anyway, great. So, uh, so I think we did pretty good, just you and me, keeping the. Keeping yeah. The... So
0: it's interesting because I was, of course, watching the map while we've been talking for the last hour. Yeah. And I saw Randy's icon basically turn around and head back for home, and sure enough, he was gone long enough to miss being here, and he's back. So, <laughs> we'll probably have Randy on again next week. I'm sure. But I'm sure. Yeah. That's we'll right. uh, We'll try and put it a. Yeah, hopefully the the whatever you got called out for turned out well as well. So
1: Great. So uh we got stuff to say at the end like you can find the show notes. That's what we've got. That's what we've got. Yes, yeah.
0: okay. This Ra- Randy usually does this part, yeah. so we're kind of we're kind of winging it here. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com/teh13. We're also on Twitter at the T E H podcast. And you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the, <coughs> of course that happens. The T E H podcast. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you again here next week. Take care, everyone. Bye.